Hello and welcome to 251, two pianists, five podcasts, one subject. And the subject of uh, this series is the piano player Kenny Drew. And today we're going to be talking specifically about his work with Dexter Gordon. My name's Nick Tomlin. And I'm Simon Whiteside. And as Nick said, we're going to be talking about Kenny Drew's connection with Dexter Gordon. He first recorded with him in 1955 on the album Daddy Plays the Horn, which was, um, I think it was a West Coast production, that one. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to record uh, a few different albums with uh, Dexter Gordon, but the one we're going to talk about is Dexter Calling from 1961. But most of his recorded albums with Dexter Gordon are live albums which come from the Montmartre Club in Denmark, where Dexter Gordon settled, and Kenny Drew also moved to Europe. And I don't think he ever really came back, but Dexter did make a, in I think 1974, mm-hmm. Dexter made a sort of comeback to the United States, which Kenny Drew was actually quite against. But the thing that links everything together as well today is an interesting um, play called The Connection. It was written in 1959 by Jack Gelber, and it was... Uh, The first production of it was by a company called Living Theatre, which was um, set up by Judith Molina. And it was a very interesting play because they tried to break down the concept of it being a proscenium arch and a play that you come and sit down, the curtain opens and you begin. When the audience came in, the cast members were already in the loft apartment set on 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 stage kind of you know chatting and doing stuff and and then even during the interval because they're all the the, the connection is the guy turning up to give them their drug and uh in the interval the cast of the drug addicts of the cast were um, out in the audience trying to get money out of people to help support their so-called habit and in fact many of the people in the play did have a real habit now the interesting thing about it is that there was uh this new york production had music so there were four jazz players who were actually acting in the play three of whom really didn't act much that was the rhythm section of um uh, jackie mclean actually was was one of the other people he was he was the sort of sax player but the pianist freddie red wrote the music and the, there was a bass player and a drummer also involved. And that play then went to Los Angeles and Dexter Gordon got the job of doing the same, as it were, the, the Freddie Red role. And he wrote different music for the show, but basically similar tunes because the tunes served a function. And even more interestingly, I think over in Europe, uh, Kenny Drew was the pianist in the um, European Paris performance of this play now i'm not quite sure i don't know if you found this out nick or not but i'm not quite sure what the music was for that whether they used the freddie red tunes wrote new tunes yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure actually uh and then further to that in 19 think 61 there was a film made of the connection and that brought back the original cast of jazz musicians to play those tunes again and an album was released of that of that music. So it's, and you know, obviously drugs and drug scene were very interesting to people. It had been a big part of the bebop and early bop sort of musical scene. And in a way, it's slightly, obviously, it's not realistic in a way. But, you know, Dexter Gordon had... A heroin habit which he managed to kick. I'm not sure if Kenny Drew was a, a serious user, but we know Sonny Clark obviously died of it, uh, which wasn't long after Dexter and, and Kenny Drew had moved to the their European bases of Paris and Copenhagen. Anyway, we're going to talk about uh, Dexter Calling, and, and one of the reasons I've been talking about this play, and I'll hand over to Nick in a moment to add any of his thoughts, is that several of the tunes on Dexter Calling are the songs that he, that Dexter Gordon wrote for that um, play. So do you have anything to add, Nick? Uh, just a couple of things, really. And I think it was kind of slightly ironic that, um, although, as you said, Dexter plays a drug addict in the play, actually by this time he'd, he'd actually kicked his, his drug habit. Uh, although, you know, he said that um, 
having had that experience really helped with his portrayal of this obviously of this drug addict in the play um and and another little funny kind of anecdote um which which i got from dexter gordon's biography um is that in the la production it was uh, lawrence marable was on drums and he sounds like quite a character there's there's lots of anecdotes involving lawrence marable in this book um and he yeah as, as i said he he played the drums in the la version and um the thing was that they were given checks that uh you know uh for their uh performances um but the checks w- were basically um made out by the connection and Lawrence Marable was i think he was quite worried that they'd have trouble <laughs> cashing the cashing checks, the checks yeah. from the connection <laughs> but um i think they managed to to sort it out but <laughs> yes well of course that's the uh, famous drumming um drumming mantra isn't it is it a check is it a check cash <laughs> Well, we'll go on to talk about um, the two albums. This podcast will be a podcast of two halves, basically. So uh, the next uh, thing we're going to talk about is Dexter Calling. Dexter Calling was recorded on the 9th of May, 1961, at the the new Van Gelder Studios um, in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. And it was one of the last... Uh, sort of group of albums that Kenny Drew made before he left for Europe, probably later that year, um, towards the end of 61. Uh, the personnel on this were Dexter Gordon on tenor sax, Kenny Drew obviously on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Philly Joe Jones on drums. And as we previously mentioned, three of the tracks were pieces from the this play, The Connection. Um, they were a Soul Sister, Uh, I Want More and Ernie's Tune and then they were interspersed with a couple of Kenny Drew originals and a standard so that the full running order was um, Soul Sister, Modal Mood, I I Want More, End of a Love Affair, uh, Clear the Decks, Ernie's Tune and Smile. Yeah and that uh, play The Connection is interesting here because 1961 saw Kenny Drew record first with Jackie McLean Quintet, then with a Kenny Dorham Quintet, then he recorded with Tina Brooks, then backed with Kenny Dorham for a Sextet album, uh, an album by a guy called uh, Johnny Coles, then an album by a guy called Ted Curzon, both of those not Blue Note, and then Dexter Gordon's recording what you're talking about, followed by... Grant Green, that was his, and that was his last Blue Note recording, and then he did one more with a guy called Haggard Hardy, uh, which was recorded at Bell Sounds uh, in August of 61. So it was a pretty reasonable year recording-wise, wasn't it, in mm. terms of his docket? Yeah. But um, he had, I think, already decided to follow Bud Powell's example and move to to Europe. And he really loved it, didn't he? He... he he didn't want Dexter Gordon to go back to America. He thought it was, he said that, you know, the Americans don't dig jazz anymore, especially in the mid-70s. He's probably pretty accurate. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it's worth, you know, just looking at the the fact that a significant number of musicians, American musicians, moved to, to Europe at one time or another. Some some didn't really stay uh, for that long. Some some spent the rest of their careers there, like, like Kenny Drew. And, and I think really it was just the fact that they just received received a kind of warmer welcome in Europe. I think they were they 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 were treated more like artists, you know, musical artists, and um, they didn't have the same problems with um, prejudice and um, segregation and and the, these you know these these problems also um, you know problems with with the law enforcement and they they just had had so many difficulties to overcome in America um, which they didn't really seem to have in in Europe to the same extent um. no and I think Kenny um, really enjoyed that aspect of it um, although you know it's arguable whether he made that many of his I don't think he made his best work in Europe if mm. I'm honest for me no it, it, some might argue differently uh, we should probably then just delve into this album, um, mm. and I've done a transcription of of one of the Kenny Drew tunes called "Clear the Decks," 
But so we'll talk about all the other tunes first, just you know, to give you an idea. And you know, we we publish uh, playlists for Spotify, Apple Music, etc. For these, um, we recommend you listen to it um, before, if you can, or you know, pause the podcast here and have a listen to the albums. Then it makes a little bit more sense what we're talking about. So the first tune, um, Soul Sister, that is from the LA version of of the Connection. And it has a corollary with uh, one of the Freddie Red tunes, doesn't it? Yeah, so uh, Freddie Red wrote a tune called Theme for Sister Salvation, which was uh, the original production. And this is sort of Dexter's version of that in a way. I, I would call it a, an eight-bar blues, really, the form. Um, so it's a kind of slightly shortened uh, version of the 12-bar blues structure. And I suppose it's most noticeable because it kind of changes feel. It starts off with a quite a kind of gospely sort of 6-8 feel for the head. But then the solos go into more of a kind of straight ahead 4-4 feel um, yeah. and then back to the kind of 6-8 feel again for the for the final head. Yes, and the presumably that Dexter had to fill the roles of the very... If you think about it, theatre music has some similarities with film music, which is it's there to support the action on stage mm-hmm. or to set up... The action on stage or sometimes for a practical reason to change scenery although i think in this particular version this particular play it's all set in one loft mm-hmm. um with a, a bunch of addicts hanging around waiting for godot or in, in this in this particular situation <laughs> he does turn up so <laughs> it's not beckett like uh yeah i mean that that sort of three four six eight uh feel it versus and, and it's almost a bit marchy isn't it at one point mm. Mm. I mean, Kenny Drew's solo on it is quite sort of gospely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I listened to the to the Freddie Red tune, and it's kind of gospely as well. It's obviously that was the kind of mood he was trying to create. Um, yeah. Sort of the feel in that that particular point in the in the play. So, tune two on this album, on the first side, is modal mood, and that is tuned by Kenny Drew, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's one of two originals by him on this album. Now, I found it had some similarities for me with. Uh, with some of Sonny Clark's minor tunes, particularly that kind of uh, call and response thing that he does at the beginning of the tune, and you know those those steps between the, that thing of going down and back up uh, from a C minor to a B flat minor chord. Yeah, yeah. And I guess we'd broadly say it was an A A B A tune, where the A is a C minor sort of turnaround, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And then the B section, I suppose I think of it a bit similar to um, a monk bridge in the sense that it sort of goes through a cycle of fifths or sometimes the substitutions of that. It's kind of descending, so isn't it? Yeah. So it becomes yeah. a descending, descending thing. Descending line, yeah. yeah. But when they blow on it, it's very much a 2-5 sort of feel to me. It doesn't, they don't do the, you know, they, they play the root chords as yeah. opposed to the substitutions. Yeah, yeah. And I think... Uh, I mean, Kenny's solo on this I find really strong. And I th- it's, quite, it's still quite bop-based, even though it's a bit of a minor modal canvas yeah. that he's playing on. Yeah, I mean, it's called modal mood, but he doesn't really play... I mean, especially if we compare it with maybe when we look at some of the some of his playing on the One Flight Up album, which was from a few years later. As you say, it's still very much kind of rooted in the sort of hard bop style, isn't it, really, I think, at this point? Yeah, and I... I like the idea of that sort of shout chorus that they... I don't know if that was something developed in the the famous rehearsals, but that shout chorus for the drum fours, which is sort of the head on the way out, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I like those sort of more arranged elements to Dexter Gordon's tunes. Mm. Yeah, it works really well, I uh, think, that shout. And it gives it a good... Uh, so he does a whole chorus, doesn't he? He does four bars, then four bars, and then the, he does the whole bridge. Mm-hmm. And then four bars and four bars, and then they do the the outhead. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think the the move the, Kenny Dorham, I think, is very important around this time. Uh, the, one of the reasons I listed who he had recorded with that year is I think Kenny Dorham's writing helps un- in understanding Kenny Drew's writing mm. because certainly there are elements of that style that he kind of perfected and he, he Kenny Dorham is one of those people who 
and I, I know he had quite a lot of his own albums you know particularly whistle stop is is a is one that Kenny Drew played on which was very important mm. but um he also wrote loads of tunes for other people so our thing uh, for example Joe Henderson well Joe Henderson wrote half the tunes but Kenny Durham wrote pretty much the other half mm. and he he does seem to turn up on Hank Mobley albums and write tunes mm. and he, he's always contributing as a composer and I think he started that uh, I think he, it might be it's you know arguable as it were that the style that was being heard by Alfred Lyon at this time which he liked was that Kenny Dorham sort of thing and he was asking people to do to do stuff like mm. that mm. It, it was moving it was modal but it was still bop and, that, yeah. and that's an interesting yeah. combination really yeah and quite often with Kenny Dorham's tunes you have a maybe what you might call an ostinato type riff based um a section and then a changes based b section or or if it's a b a c riff changes riff changes uh so the next tune we're going to talk about is um, another one from the LA version of Connection, and that's I Want More. Um, what do you think about? Yeah, so th- this, again, had a cor- corollary with um, uh, with a tune called OD, which was the uh, tune that was in the original um, production. Um, I mean, I listened to that, and, and Dexter's is definitely a bit more laid back. I think that, the f- I mean, presumably OD uh, obviously stands for overdose, so, uh, you know, maybe that gives you a, a clue as to as to its kind of function in in the play but um uh the freddie red piece is is a bit more kind of uh angst ridden i would say dexter's is kind of like uh it's quite a kind of swinging medium swing sort of tune isn't it it's um quite laid back um but he but he does start with this quite interesting uses this diminished scale doesn't he um at the beginning which does create this kind of tension um, yeah uh and so he's got the he's he's basically kind of descending down it's like an E diminished scale uh, over an E flat uh, bass note, um, which is interesting. And I think he's, he he he's sort of taken the first part of the melody, hasn't he? But he's kind of extended it down through the through the diminished scale. But it creates a really interesting effect, I think. Well, it's something he seems to be using quite a lot. We'll we'll encounter it again in um, even in the Ernie's tune, won't we? Diminished yes, patterns. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what I find interesting about this tune is it's it's almost written for two players, but played by one player, isn't it? Yeah. So you have that da 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 ba do da do da da ba da ba do da. Yeah. And there are quite a lot of those little interjections. You can almost imagine it being played by yeah, that's a, true. A second yes. horn. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was only a quartet in in both in the play as well, mm. so it, mm. it, it was never scored for more than one horn. No, no. But it does seem to suggest that to me. And and it's quite a good set of changes, isn't it? Mm. Sort of two five one into A flat, two five one into D flat, yeah. and then um, we have that. Well, it is, it is an odd form, in the sense that the it's sort of A B C A D, isn't it? Almost. Mm. If it was a normal thirty-two bar form, you'd expect it to be A B. Then you go back to the A, but it sort of does the B twice. Yes. Yeah. But as yeah. a variation, yes. so you've got. Uh, three sets of eight before you go back to A. And then when you go back back to A, you go on to that second section, but you only play it half as long. Yes, yeah. So it's, again, this sort of playing with form seems to be um, a late 50s, early 60s thing Mm. on the Blue Note Mm. uh, albums that we've discussed so far. Yeah, Kenny Solo on this is really a good workout, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. we're on to side two then, aren't we, of this album? Yeah, so the the next track is um, It's the End of a Love Affair, um, which is a, a tune by um, Edward Redding from, from 1950. And um, uh, it was first really performed by the Jimmy Dorse, Dorsey Orchestra in, in 1951. I think they sort of made it quite well known as a tune. Mm. Um, and it, it's written as a ballad. I mean, it is, it's basically a ballad, but, but Dexter here takes it quite a fast swing um i mean the only sort of previous recorded version i could find was well the messengers did quite a famous version of it didn't they but Mm. they they did it more kind of latin swing although they they took it at quite a reasonably fast tempo but they um yeah they did this kind of latin swing thing with it whereas dexter just takes it at at a kind of a as a straight head swing really Mm. um 
I think Wes and actually Wes Montgomery recorded it as well, but he kind of copied the Messengers arrangement. I think so. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but it, it works really well actually as a as a swing, doesn't it? It's sort of a fairly yeah. quickish sort of swing. I mean, yeah. it's also on um, Lady in Satin, isn't it? Billy Holiday. I think. Yes, that's true. Yes, yeah, yeah. But I like the I like the swing treatment of it. It's got. A, I like those sort of starizy bits da, 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 mm. that sort of feel um that they they get into mm. um some of the um they bring in some sort of arranged hits as it were and and it does work very well and i think kenny plays a good bebop solo on this doesn't he it's very changes yeah i mean oriented. i mean he's really strong on this kenny drew you know on, on the whole album mm. he's, he's really really plays well on this album I think. uh well the second tune on on side two is clear the decks and we're going to talk about that in a bit more detail because i've done a, a transcription of it so let's move on to the the, the final two tunes from side b and side, uh the third tune is ernie's tune and that's from the la production of the connection as well isn't it yeah um and this is a, a ballad um and uh i sort of transcribed the 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 chords i think you did as well and it's um it's a, it's a nice tune it's quite it's quite a strange form in a way a, a little bit like with I want more, it's not it's not a traditional kind of A B A or A B A A or you know it's it's quite um, it, it kind of quite meandering in a way, isn't it? Um, there are these different sections, and then and then he they go to this quite strange sort of um, section where he's kind of alternating between a it's really an E flat uh, seven sort of flat nine going to an A flat seven flat nine with these kind of stabs, which. Um, sort of it doesn't sound out of place i mean it works well but it's quite it's quite surprising isn't it really uh, I, I find that that section um it's it's a tune i mean the, the, that little bit of it supposed to be the sort of jekyll and hyde personality isn't it of, of ernie right i'm not i'm not sure yeah uh, i remember when i first i didn't know about the the play and everything uh, when i first heard this tune i it's such a lovely ballad that mm. it all, almost annoyed me that we had this rather heavy odd section mm. and he, he plays this and then he does that again up the octave yeah. but then then he keeps on with that pattern and sort of basically improvises on us sets of diminished mm. scale scales doesn't mm. he mm-hmm. but uh, the whole thing is actually just twice through i think in terms of its form it's just that the form isn't very normal mm. and also dexter's i don't know how whether he wrote the tune down or not, but he's playing it very loosely, isn't he? Yes, yeah. So yeah. I've, although I've written the tune out, it doesn't really make it... It looks more like a solo than yeah, a tune. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So that... That's probably what the actual sheet music would yeah, look like yeah. if, if you saw the original. Yeah, yeah. Where he's putting all these extra little lines in and... and uh, usual dexter cool um laid back inflections mm. but it is very very arresting i think it's a, it's a very warm feeling and i think maybe there's a, this this idea that dexter had sympathy or, or almost method acted if you me, methadone acting perhaps <laughs> uh, is because he did have some sympathy for the character um which it maybe comes through in this ballad mm. Uh, mm. and the you know realizing that people can go dark on drugs so the final tune unless you have more to say about that no no because uh, kenny drew doesn't even get a solo on that does he no it's, no, it's, it's just, just a texture yeah. straight through sort of mm-hmm. thing now the final tune is smile and well interestingly i found out that dexter gordon didn't even realize that it was written by charlie chaplin all oh, right um, mm. It was uh, one of the, the sleeve note writers who sort of pointed it out to him. But it was Charlie Chaplin wrote this for the soundtrack of his probably his most well known and perhaps best film, Modern Times. Mm. And he was inspired by the music of Puccini, apparently, to to for this tune. Yeah, and, I think and, there's a theme. There's a, there's a it, it's a very brief theme from Puccini from Tosca, isn't it? Which mm. he kind of took that and then used that as the, yeah. the main theme. Uh, and and it's interesting because it's often done as a ballad. Obviously, the, the Nat King Cole version of this is very 
well known. Mm. I think he did. I think Nat King Cole did the first kind of version with the lyrics. Is that right? And yeah, because so the lyrics weren't written until the fifties. That's were right. I think fifty-four. Yeah, the lyrics and, and the title. I think it was given a title then. I think up until then it was just it was just an instrumental, wasn't it? Basically. Yeah. It was a, yeah. Yeah. Theme. I, mean, I don't know whether many people realise that Charlie Chaplin wrote all the music for his own films, um, but he did. Mm. And um, yeah, and also I, I wonder if they realise he's British, but perhaps they do. There's a plaque in on a house in Kennington that I I'm, I've seen uh, where he lived mm. in before moving to America. Mm. But again, they don't treat it like a ballad, do they? No, it's it's, uh, it's another quite almost quite up. Yeah, yeah, quite cheerful, really. For yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Because the, the the idea of this is it's a sort of a um, what's the what we'd call a paradox between smiling through the pain, but also smiling. Yeah, and what yeah. it can do for you. Well, that's the album in a in a sort of very brief overview. Um, we should have a look at the tune "Clearing the Decks" in more detail. So we're going to talk about Clear the Decks, the second original tune that Kenny Drew contributed to the album Dexter Calling. And it's an A-B-A-C tune in the key of B-flat. So by that I mean there's eight bars of a particular theme, then eight bars of something else, then back to the original theme, and then C is usually some sort of variation of B ending differently. But the... The thing I find interesting about this is that he, in in the tune, again, it sounds quite sort of progressive, doesn't it, with the pedal going on in, mm. in the background. So the, the this uh, when we say a pedal, we mean the same note being reiterated. And that's uh, going on in the left hand. It's, it's a, what we call a dominant pedal in this case. And over the top of that, Dexter Gordon's playing... Uh, which is the sort of main tune. And it's got a quite a suspended feel about it, hasn't it, actually? It's not in really in B-flat as such. Mm. It is, but it doesn't feel particularly strongly rooted. Mm. And then we have the, the B section is, uh, is a set of chords uh, going round. And what's interesting next is when we go to... We would expect to go to... But in fact, we go to, which is um, which is the home key, uh, and, and what you've described as, I think, a backdoor cadence, haven't you, Nick? Yeah, sometimes it gets called that, yeah. And then we have um, a little bit preparing us to get back to... And then F7... Um, and then we have our main tune again. Same thing again. But then we change it. And he goes to a G flat chord, interestingly, at the end there, which I think sort of that adds to the tension, doesn't it? it keeps you mm. waiting for... Because we're going to go back to B flat for the blowing straight away and stay there for quite a long time. So rather than get there early, it sort of almost delays it just for a couple more bars, doesn't it? Mm. And his solo, I think, is very strong. It's one of my favourite... Uh, of, of the solos I've transcribed so far, it's my favourite, and I think the one that I will go back to, because it's quite useful sort of... Um, rhythm changes in B-flat material. Um, again, characteristically, he has his bluesy-type feels, um, which he uses a lot. But he, he also uses quite a lot of on-the-beat on stuff, uh, which is less true in, in anything I've done so far. I don't know, you've done the more tunes that might be like this from Kenny Drew, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. But I found that he, he you know, with the ballads particularly, he's very, very fluid. Mm. Uh, but there's a lovely little... Um, little blues lick uh, that he does uh, at uh, w one of the tops of the B-flat sections. Mm. 
Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of bebop language in there as well and, and the hard bop sort of stuff. And I particularly like the way he comes out of his solo into the uh, bass solo, which starts. So he, we're at, uh, just coming out of the B-flat section here. That's quite a typical phrase mm. of his. Nice bit of blues. Then he holds that on as the bass solo sort of starts up mm. and lets it fade away naturally with its natural decay. So there's some really nice stuff. Of course, that uh, transcription will be available on our Patreon page for those who wish to um, get some eyes on dots. And that's where that's where the the, um, the books will go when we finally get around to writing them. And uh, worth a look at, worth a bit of study, I think. Have you got any comments you'd like to add to to this no, album no, I mean, or I've, tune? Uh, no, I think, you, I think you covered it well. I think we should uh, probably move on. So we're going to talk about the album that he recorded in Paris uh, called One Flight Up. And Dexter Gordon had already moved, basing himself in Denmark, whereas I think Kenny was still based in Paris we hadn't quite made that move yet. I'm not sure if you've got the date for that, but here we go. As we've said previously, Kenny Drew moved to Paris in the latter part of 1961. And then about three years later, uh, he moved to Copenhagen and that's where he spent the rest of his life. Um, I've got a nice little quote uh, from, it's from a liner notes from a, a later album of his, um, where he just talks about the reasons uh, for moving to Europe and, and what he enjoyed about it. So he said, um, living in Copenhagen and travelling out from there, I've probably worked in more different contexts than if I'd have stayed in New York, where I might have got musically locked in with a set group of musicians. This way, I've been able to keep my musical antennas in shape, while at the same time, I've had more time to study and also get deeper into my own endeavours. So it's quite an interesting little insight there into his his sort of way of thinking that I think for him it was definitely a sort of uh, more of a sense of freedom he got from from moving out of America, moving to Europe. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the interesting thing about... I, I think that for a black musician, being in Europe at this time was far more rewarding, especially in terms of respect. Yeah, for I sure. I mean, I'm not saying we that the, in Europe... There was less racism, but uh, there were a lot of people who really liked jazz. Mm. When Dexter Gordon came over for the first time to play at the Montmartre Club, it was um, it was quite a thing because he got delayed because he got hauled up on drugs charges in Paris. Mm. There's quite a dark story, isn't there, about about that? And um, and people turned up to the club to listen to him. And he didn't show up, so they turned up for the next day, and he didn't show up, and they turned up for a third day, and he did, and then he did turn up, and it was almost like <laughs> they they were gonna they were waiting for him, you know. They, 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 these are the same people a lot of the time. It wasn't yeah, like yeah. I want my money back. Where's the star? They they it was kind of almost so much respect that it's like well, okay, if you're not here maybe you'll we'll come wait. tomorrow yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. so uh, i think that part of of that statement is very true that he, he was able to concentrate on what he was doing much more yeah yeah and this is a really interesting album for, for several reasons one it was recorded in paris wasn't it mm -hmm. um two it's getting to that point where people start to spread out on a whole side of an album for a mm -hmm. song. Mm -hmm. And the original vinyl of this album only contained three tunes, didn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, Cop in the Haven uh, was written by Kenny Drew, which we're going to talk about in more detail. But the whole of side one is a tune called Tanya, which um, is a sort of modal modal thing. And it's much more modal than than what we've discussed so far, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, would you? Do you have any comments about that? 
well, I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering if we should just give the the um, just the details that when, of the album when it was recorded and yeah, um, before yeah. we move on to that. But so it, this album was recorded, uh, as you said, it was recorded in Paris um, at the CBS Studios in in Paris on June the second, nineteen sixty four. And uh, the personnel was Dexter Gordon on um, tenor sax, Donald Byrd on trumpet, Kenny Drew on piano, and um, the bass player was um, Niels Henning Orsted Pedersen, who at the time was only 18 years old. Um, maybe we'll talk a bit more about him. He's quite a quite an amazing um, player, really. Um, and uh, Art, Taylor, Art Taylor on drums. And I think Dexter had, had actually, he'd suggested this album to Alfred Lyne and Francis Wolfe um, after working with Niels Henning or Orsted Pedersen. I think I'm going to call him Kneehop from now on. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> because, I think a lot. Of, yeah. I think they called him Orsted. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, yeah. Because otherwise it, it, this podcast could go on for... Uh, <laughs> yeah, luck, luckily there aren't any Sri Lankan bass players. <laughs> He will be the only people with longer names. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah. So I think he'd worked with them, obviously, um, probably at the Montmartre, I guess, um, because that, because um, Nehop and Alex Real um, were the kind of uh, they were the sort of the house band. Um, yeah. Along with Kenny Drew at uh, Montmartre, and um, uh, and I think Dexter had really enjoyed, especially playing with with Nehop, and so he. Um, uh, yeah, he he suggested that they make this this album, and and as you say, the the first track by which is actually a Donald Byrd tune, Tanya. Um, yeah, it lasts the whole of one side of an album, um, but it's eighteen, it's over eighteen minutes long. Uh, yes, this, the first track. So just yeah. to remind our listeners, you can fit a, approximately twenty minutes on one side of an album. So eighteen minutes long really doesn't leave you much leeway. You could possibly have got. a two and a half minute tune on there which would have been pretty weird considering you just listened to an 18 minute tune <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and in fact even um cop in the haven lasts what 12 minutes yeah. something, doesn't it yeah. or 11 yeah. something um and the the other and then there's the the other tune on the album is darn that dream mm. which i think is reasonably long pretty, as well yeah yeah interestingly they recorded the only dexter gordon original which didn't make in, in that session, which didn't make the cut, which was a tune called Kong Neptune, or sometimes mm. called King Neptune, mm. um, which is on the CD version of it as the last tune, uh, but it didn't make the the selection process because, it, again, I think that's another reasonably long tune and mm. there's just not enough mm. room on vinyl for no. that amount of stuff. No. So, so Tanya, it's, it's a very long form. Uh, it, it's actually, I did actually work it out. It's, as far as I could work it out, it's 74 bars, <laughs> the actual length of the tune. And that includes, so they do an intro, kind of extended in, intro for about 24 bars. And then there's the A section, which is kind of 32 bars. And then there's a short B section, which is kind of eight bars. And then there's an, another little interlude, which which kind of goes between the, uh, the, the sections. Um, and... Um, it's yeah i mean it's obvious that they're, they're i think it really as you say it really shows a different approach they're, they're thinking more in terms of uh they're thinking more modally for sure you know uh, and um and this as you say this is probably the most modal um tune that uh dexter's recorded up and um, up until this point and as much as it it really does focus on on um kind of exploring a mode and, and kind of extending extending the, the, the improvisation um, yeah, I mean, he he copes with it very well, doesn't he? It's not; it doesn't sound like he's no. trying to impose bebop on it. Or anything. No, no, no. Um, and and of course, the other thing is that I talked about Kenny Dorham's influence. I don't know if you know uh, the tune "Escapade" from Our Thing. No, no. For example, in "Cop in the Haven." And then they sort of move it around. Um, well, I mean, Escapade has got a very similar sort of uh, sort of exploratory line. And this is this is very. It's quite a simple tune, really. Yes, yeah, quite. I mean, of, that's a blues yeah, lick, blues, really. Yes, especially a blues. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's, it's one of the reasons I think "Time Out" by Dave Brubeck works very well. Is that al- although all the time signatures are slightly odd, the form the forms are very natural feeling, aren't they? Mm. So you mm. know, doing a blues but in five four. Mm. So it's like don't challenge your audience on five fronts. You know, just 
challenge them on the one front of time mm. and then everything else to them is sounds like jazz is mm. familiar and i think in a way that's what's happening with the with these tunes but so many of kenny dorham's tunes have the this sort of mm. those sorts of feels uh and and our thing came out um not at all long before this recording mm. so assuming people like kenny drew were keeping up with what was being put out on Blue Note, I think we can assume that he'd be interested in... Because Dexter Gordon particularly loved Kenny Dorham, didn't he? Mm, they were staying mm. aware of what was going on Yeah, yeah. coming out of Hackensack or uh, by this time, Englewood yeah. Cliffs. And, and everyone solos well on it, don't they? It doesn't get, doesn't get boring. No, no. Uh, uh, I think it works really well, this track. Uh, and uh, I think because they... I think that, that it's very clever the way they pace their solos. So it's... You know, it, um, it's it's sort of got this. It's kind of brooding, I would say. That is the kind of the, the mood, and it kind of builds, doesn't it? They, they kind of build the tension, and and um, I think the way the rhythm section plays is really good because it's they're they're always constantly shifting it and varying the pulse. So it, I, I think it works well. I mean, I don't think it, I don't think it gets boring. Um, no. Um, so I should I should just make it clear that I was actually playing Cop in the Haven, not not. <laughs> oh, right, uh, not okay. Tanya, yeah, but yeah. Tanya's the yeah, 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 isn't it yeah, in yeah. F minor? So uh, apologies for confusing the listeners. I was talking more about modal playing in mm. in general. Um, it's got it's got a look, that particular lick has a little bit of a similarity to Eddie Jefferson's Janine, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, uh, that sort of up and down. Yeah, but you know it, it, that's what was going on since kind of Blue in '59, I guess. Yeah, yeah, this, no, yeah. They're definitely reflecting. You know, reflecting what's happening in in jazz around this time. You know, we're talking. I'm mean, getting towards mid '60s now, aren't we? So yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think also the uh, there's always those sort of blues inflection ideas. So so we have and we go to yeah and then yeah. back to yeah. So it's, yeah, it's kind of like a sort of extended blues really in yeah. a way with a, with a with a middle section but the but the i i think the idea is that um there are familiarities there for people to hold on to mm. that it's not like we're going somewhere really odd no and a lot of times as you said that the starting point is still either the blues or rhythm changes or minor blues you know and then they just kind of take these forms which which are people know and, and are familiar with like you say and then they just look at how they can vary them extend them add bits you know and so they're but the the basic forms are still kind of quite similar aren't they in a way yeah definitely so let's let's have a look at side b then um why don't we discuss down that dream first because you're going to go into some mm-hmm. more detail on cop in the haven mm-hmm. um down that dream obviously is a, is a very well-known ba- a ballad now mm. But it was actually, I don't know if you know the history of this. A little bit. I I read, it was from, well, there was a kind of jazz version of Midsummer Night's Dream, wasn't there, I think. Yeah. um, Swinging the Dream, I think it was called. Exactly, yeah. Um, And that that was a highly invested box office flop. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, But I mean, it had like Louis Armstrong and Maxine Sullivan. You know, they had some big sort of names in it, didn't it? It did, and... And that the the thing that came out of it was this tune, mm. and so certainly Benny Goodman and Tommy Dorsey both had hits with this mm. particular song quite early on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think forty forty and forty one perhaps. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm going to be absolutely honest. The the problem I have with this album, I was trying to work out. I, I said to you when we first discussed what to do, which album to look at, that I hadn't. I didn't really listen to this album much, and it's the one tune on this album where the drums aren't too loud because mm. he's on brushes yeah it is an odd mix definitely the the, um... uh, the drums appear to be right in your face and everyone else appears to be slightly in yeah. another room don't they yeah. now yeah. i don't know if that's because they put the drums in a booth um how, how, how they recorded it mm. but, but it's it really it yeah it's a bit of a problem for me mm. um and on on the tunes where he's playing on sticks it's it does get to me, mm. if I'm honest. Mm. But on brushes, you don't don't really notice it. But uh, I don't know if I've already told this story or not. But when I first moved to London, I worked at Hampstead Waterstones, and we had um, sort of endless tape machine thing where you put four cassettes in, and it would play those cassettes mm. around all day. 
and we could bring things in to put into the machine as long as it wasn't too outrageous. And I said to someone one evening, because we used to close quite late, um, I said, oh, it would be really good this time of night to have some like jazz ballads on. And I, I said, well, I've got a load of Dexter Gordon stuff that's got some really good ballads on. Maybe I should make a compilation. And I went next door to um, the, the now defunct record shop called R Price. Mm. Thought, well, is there, is there any Dexter Gordon I don't have? Then I should maybe you know check something else out. There might be another good ballad on there. And uh, walked in there and was confronted with ballads, Dexter Gordon, which had literally <laughs> just come out. 1990, I think it came out. And, um, and this is the first track on that album. So I just bought that CD and, and recorded that mm. and onto cassette, and uh, we played it in the shop. So Dexter's ballad playing is pretty legendary, isn't it? Yeah, it's, and it's an... It's another stunning ballad performance, really, from from Dexter on this. And uh, should probably just mention they they played this track uh, previously on Daddy Plays the Horn. It was one of the yeah. tracks they recorded in. Is that fifty five? Nineteen fifty five. Yeah. Fifty five. Yeah. Yeah. So they they both sort of performed it together previously. Um, but it's a great it's a great performance. Classic Dexter ballad. Really. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the solo on this is one of his. I would say one of his greatest. Yeah. Yeah. For me, certainly, it's one of my favourite. But also that kind of the way he poignantly plays the almost wrong note in his solos. You know, he chooses some pretty notes, doesn't he? Yeah, to land yeah. on, and yeah. it, he's he's really drilling into you emotionally. I think with those notes and this massive tone. Yeah, yeah, a huge sense of yearning. And and I think we've said this before about Dexter Gordon when we when we talked about the Sonny Clark um, collaboration on on Go and Swinging Affair, but. Dexter Gordon always knew the lyrics for the songs he played, mm. didn't he? Mm -hmm. And in fact, on the live recordings, particularly in Europe, he would recite it like yes, a poem, he wouldn't would, he? Yes, yeah, yeah. Before playing, yeah. Um, and Kenny Drew he has, has a very, very nice introduction mm. to it, doesn't he? Which, um, which was available. Uh, I've done a lead sheet for it that will be also on the, um, on the. Uh, Patreon page, but just just to play you a couple of the nice chords there. So he starts with this really interesting chord, uh, which is a sort of B half diminished, but with some with a flat five and a sharp five in there. Mm. That's a really interesting voicing. That. And then he yeah. goes up to uh, an E. And then it's some nice. Uh, upper structure mm, things a flat mm, over d7 mm. and then a c mm. which is a, just a fairly normal diminished i suppose but then we go back to a b9 and i like this change and again so he's using quite a lot of triads over over shells isn't mm, it yeah i mean it's quite bill evans isn't it i mean you know you can hear definitely i mean you know it's interesting i think kenny drew is one of those players who who's and you can sort of see it by that quote of his really that he's 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 always taking on influence in that i think he's really he's, play, he's playing really develops doesn't it? i mean if you compare mm. it with you know we listen to his first trio album and if you compare that with his playing even on this album yeah it's really different and i mean some of the things i'll talk about when i talk about cop in the haven as well uh, you know he's taking on some new ideas definitely and, and i think you can really hear in those voicings it's it's more you know it's it, kind of bill evans those kind of um quite rich upper structure voicings you know really uh, i mean other players were doing it as well but I, um, yeah i think it's 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 a flavor of the time mm. but i think quite you're right that he does have this um he's absorbing as duke ellington did throughout yeah. his life i mean mo really. most i think most musicians do really don't they but i think unfortunately you know especially a lot of the the bebop players they they just didn't live really long enough you know i mean uh, to, so you can really see that progression you know like sonny clark i mean i think he was the same but unfortunately he died you know when he was in his 30s so you you, you didn't really get to see you know how he how he would have played when he was 50 or 60 or you yeah know. Well, I mean, we know that, it, that the news... Well, he lost Ike Quebec and Dexter Gordon lost Ike Quebec and Sonny mm. Clark in the same week, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, uh, And there's... It, it, the 
sophisticated is it called sophisticated giant yes magazine yes yeah gordon yeah. book there's some interesting correspondence isn't there between him and um and blue notes yeah during yeah, that yeah that time when he was in europe yeah well let's talk about uh cop in the haven in more detail so cop in the haven is the only uh Kenny Drew original on One Flight Up. And the title, uh, Cop in the Haven, I, I sort of uh, guess that it comes from, that there's a district in Copenhagen which is called, I think, well, my my Danish is um, is a bit rusty, um, <laughs> but it's um, Nyhaven, N-Y-H-A-V-N is how it's actually spelled, but it kind, it kind of gets anglicised, I guess, to Haven. Um, mm. uh, so I guess it was probably written about this this entertainment district in in Copenhagen so it's called Cop in the Haven um and it's again kind of modal in that um the first section really is just kind of d minor although he's kind of moving between in a way he's moving between sort of d dorian yeah shall, I, shall I play that again yeah. cuz i sort of confuse things a bit by playing yeah. it on on a previous when we were discussing a different tune yeah Yeah, so he's got this kind of shifting modal um, sort of pattern. Um, and the tune, again, is is fairly um, simple in as much as, again, it's kind of based on the blues, really. Um, and then it goes into this uh, little eight-bar um, B section. And again, as I think you've commented before on this, Simon, it's a very, very common form where they'll set up this kind of um, pedal almost... Um, uh, a section and then they'll do a kind of release so in the bridge it goes into more of this kind of it's sort of a 2 5 uh kind of progression really mm. um and it's a really nice you know you sort of get this tension and release within the within the tune itself um which is quite nice and i actually really like this tune i think it's a really it's 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 not particularly there's nothing particularly sort of complex about it but it's it's just a really nice kind of swinging tune and it works i think it works really nice as a as a vehicle for improvising um well the things i think the things i think make for good tunes are uh, a balance and this has a balance mm. uh, and also something that is distinctive and that move that you know in, in a tune that's in d minor to go the last few um last two bars of it yeah you've got a chromatic string of, uh, chrom- sort of chromatic yeah, but all minor sevens yeah, yeah, and yeah. and to do you know and obviously that leads us leads us nicely yeah yeah into um d minor but it's it's an interesting way of getting there i suppose yeah. and it's also good to see how the different soloists kind of deal with that because it's it it's sort of you know the rest of the tune is in terms of soloing it's fairly straightforward but then you've got those two bars where you've got these these shifting sort of chromatic minor chords and um uh you know it's interesting how how kenny kind of negotiates those really, mm. um which he does very well i have to say yeah <laughs> um, absolutely yeah so um, yeah, I wanted to just talk about a couple of um, uh, aspects of this solo. Really, I mean, one is um, the fact that you know I think he's really kind of playing in a much more modal way, and, and what I mean by that really is that he he's um, he's thinking in terms of of the mode rather than thinking in terms of it being D minor, and he doesn't play anything other than the D Dorian scale for these eight bars. Um, so you know, he's really approaching it as a modal as a modal tune so i'll just play those eight bars now and the next little extract that i thought it would be interesting to look at is an example of him He's playing a sequence. So, in, in musical terms, um, a sequence is it's just a it's, a, it's a, a musical idea which is kind of then moved, so repeated and moved basically. Um, and it's used quite a lot in modal playing, just because it's quite a good way of creating tension. I think we talked about this before a little bit. How, you know, if you've got a long section um, on one chord, um, one of the challenges is kind of creating tension by using. Uh, sequences and patterns you can kind of create a sense of movement and uh uh and tension but this is a really interesting pattern and and again it's you know i think it shows kenny drew's 
development because I couldn't imagine him doing this, you know, on going back to the, the first album we listened to, the Kenny Drew Trio album we listened to at the beginning. I mean, this is a this is a kind of chromatic um, sequence that he does and, and it lasts for four bars and he just takes this sequence down. Um, so it, it's quite kind of atonal in a way um, because it's very chromatic. It, it doesn't really, there's there's very little reference to the underlying chord. I mean, this is also over the, over the D minor chord, but so I'll, I'll just play that uh, section. Um, so this is starting from bar 41. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if you have, have any thoughts about this uh, solo summer, but for me, it really, you know, I think that's why I thought it was, it's definitely worth looking at this album because you really start to see his playing changing and it did continue to to develop really, I think, um, during his time in Europe. Um, yeah, definitely. I think the one thing that I, I, I got from this is that it's not particularly, none of the tunes on this album are fast, are they? No, no. And in the past, when... Kenny's been confronted with something medium or slow. He's had a tendency to double time it in order to get his flash stuff yeah, in. Yeah. He re- he avoids that. That's true, yes. Much yeah, more on this true. album yeah. than on other things. Yeah. I mean the only bit that he goes into double time was the the bit that you asked me to do because <laughs> I, I couldn't could, transcribe at full cause, speed because I could slow it down <laughs> yeah, with my yeah, yeah, transcribe yeah. app. And, yeah. and and all all of that actually again it's it's sort of bebop language yeah, stuff yeah. but it, i mean and it, it outlines things but it's much more chromatic but it is a little bit you know it's uh, you know i can still do this it is almost the statement there for me but actually he's not concerned with that it's a lot more about particularly at this speed quavers and triplets yeah yeah um and he that's not how he has played in the past he's been known as a technically good pianist mm. Mm. being able to pull out the fireworks you know in a kind of oscar peterson type way I suppose, um, or you know, Art Tatum, one of his early influences. Well, have you any more to add? I mean, I think um, we've covered everything, and yeah. this is our last podcast for this year, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll wrap up now. This is the last episode of our series about the piano player Kenny Drew, and it's probably worth mentioning uh, what happened to him for the rest of the time uh, he was in Copenhagen. So, uh, as we said, he he recorded a lot at the Club uh, Montmartre with Dexter Gordon and many other visiting musicians. Um, he recorded quite a lot with um, Niels Henning and Orsted Pedersen as a duo. There's quite a few albums uh, of them um, performing together. Um, he toured as well. By this time, he was quite a, you know, quite a well-known um, player in Europe and, and, and in America. Um, and uh yeah do you have any anything else to say about this period of his of his life uh possibly only the fact that he did also like dexter gordon appear in films didn't he and in fact there's one you brought my attention to which i i wasn't aware of some sort of yeah some sort of um art house uh film which um I didn't actually uh, get to look at in the end, um, but uh, yeah, they, they did some performing, and obviously Dexter then went on to um, perform in Round Midnight uh, later. But in- interestingly, he would have been able to have Kenny Drew, and didn't have that pianist. Mm. Uh, he did get lots of people in on that film, didn't he? So Bobby Hutchinson and people like that that he really liked playing with. Yeah, that's true. Um, yes. Yeah, but he didn't choose to bring Kenny Drew in on that for some reason mm. i'm not sure if they fell out when he moved back to america or not really and i know that um as, as you sort of alluded to earlier I, I think there was some disagreement i think i think kenny drew was very against dexter well he, he sort of counseled him against moving back to america um whether that there was a bit of a uh, sort of split at that point i'm not sure but uh, yes well i mean i think really all we need to say to wrap wrap up is that he 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 saw out his life in Copenhagen and died there uh, in um, was it ninety three ninety three August ninety three yeah so nearly nearly sixty five which which for uh, someone of his generation yeah. wasn't so bad I mean of course no. Dexter also s- survived um, you know well into his into his later years yeah and I think um, all, all we all we really want to 
to say about what we're going to do in the future is that we will do probably two series a year, won't we? Yeah. Of these podcasts. Um, we will also going to produce something more biographical as a book about uh, Sonny Clark. But we are going to start by doing some sort of lead sheet books, you know, sort of almost like a Sonny Clark real book and a Kenny Drew real mm. book with tunes that they've written available through uh, the Patreon page and possibly on sale for, for other reasons. Uh, I'd like to th thank everyone for listening, giving their, their feedback and their support. And uh, obviously, Nick, I'd like to thank you for all, all your hard work in, in getting this uh, up and running. Well, likewise, thanks to you, Simon, as, as always. So... I think for this series and for this year, we'd like to say uh, from me, Simon Whiteside, goodbye. And from me, Nick Tomlin, goodbye.